Our scripture readings this morning uh, come from Psalm 139, verses 17 through 24 in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we're going to read all of Revelation 17 uh, as we continue our study in the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 139, where you probably know David speaks of not being able to get out of the presence of God because God is everywhere present. But here's what he says, beginning in verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Such is David's prayer to the Lord. Now, Revelation 17, beginning at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, 
The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Thus, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Truly, Lord, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded once again how much we need your spirit to lead us and guide us in your truth. And we pray that you would do so this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we begin the sixth vision or the sixth section here of the book of Revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that runs from chapter 17 through chapters 19. That's the sixth vision. Uh, Now, you all may also remember that the the book of Revelation can be divided into two parts, not only into seven parts, but also into two parts Uh, with three visions in the first chapter verse. Excuse me. Uh, with three visions in the first uh, part in chapters 1 through 11 and four visions in the second part in chapters 12 through 22. And in this second part, which is what we're at now, we are introduced to the dragon and to his helpers. That is to Satan and to those who are helping him in his rebellion against our God. (coughs) In fact, we're introduced here to five enemies of God's people. In the second part of the book, the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, that's the false prophet, the harlot Babylon, and then those who have the mark of the beast. I guess I'm going to have to. We were actually introduced to them in that order in chapters 12 through 14. And now we're going to see the judgment that comes upon each one of them, and it's in reverse order. That it is, it begins with those who have the mark of the beast. In this section we're in now, we're going to see the judgment that comes upon the harlot Babylon, the false prophet and the beast. And then finally, in the last vision, we will see the judgment that comes upon the dragon. So we've already covered the judgment of those who have the mark of the beast, right? In the fifth vision, chapters 15 and 16. We already saw that. In this present vision... We're going to see the judgment that comes upon the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot. And then this will be followed by the defeat and the judgment of the dragon in Revelation chapter 20. And and what we need to notice here is that progressive parallelism. With the repetition of each of these uh, visions, you'll notice how they go further and further into the future, how they give us more and more information about what is going to come. It's in vision form, of course, but it shows us more and more. And these last two visions, the sixth and the seventh vision, are heavy. They're loaded here with the coming of Christ, the final judgment, and the final state of believers in glory. We're going to cover all of that in these last two visions. Now, in this sixth vision, we're going to look here in chapter 17, uh, the description of this harlot, and then we're going to look at the history of the beast. 
In chapter 18, we're going to look at the inevitable and irrevocable finality of the harlot Babylon's downfall. And then when we come to chapter 19, we're going to be introduced to the rejoicing of all the inhabitants of heaven. And we've seen that in previous visions as well as each vision comes to an end. Uh, And that happens because of the Lamb's complete overthrow of Babylon, overthrow of the harlot. And also because the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. It will be a time of rejoicing. Chapter 19 concludes with this uh, glorious picture of our Savior, our victorious captain, the rider on the white horse who, who triumphs over Babylon, over the beast, and over the false prophet. He comes and he executes judgment on all of his enemies. That's where we're headed in this sixth vision that begins in chapter 17 and runs all the way through chapter 19. And so my theme will be that the Lord God Almighty sends His judgment upon the allies or the helpers of the dragon. And we're going to look at the description of the harlot, which is also called Babylon, in verses 1-6. through six. And then we're going to look at the history of the beast. So we're going to have... It's mostly an introduction to what's going to follow in the next chapter where we will see the... Uh, Judgment that comes upon Babylon. So, so let's begin with the description of the harlot Babylon as we find it here in the first two verses of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You, you'll notice... This is one of the seven angels, one of those angels who came and who poured out one of the seven bowls of God's wrath that we looked at earlier. This one comes, we're not told which one it is, but he comes and he speaks with the Apostle John. He comes to show John the judgment that is coming on the harlot, the judgment that's coming on Babylon. Now what I want to point out here is uh, in chapter 21, verse 9, we're also told that one of these angels comes to John and says something very similar, but it's, of course, the complete opposite. It's a contrast. Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And so so as we begin this section, it's, it's important for us to realize here that there are contrasts to keep in mind. And the first contrast that we see is the contrast between the harlot Babylon, full of abominations and all sorts of filthiness, and the bride of the Lamb who is holy and pure like a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to see more contrast here as we work our way through this chapter. But notice that even though verse 1 announces the judgment that's coming on the harlot Babylon, most of this chapter is taken up with her association with the beast. And the reason for this is because the harlot Babylon cannot be understood apart from her relationship with the beast. Anti-Christian persecution and anti-Christian seduction, the beast and Babylon, they go hand in hand, at least until they don't, as we're going to see here. So John, we're told, is carried into the wilderness where he sees this scarlet beast and a woman clothed in purple and scarlet, and she's riding on the beast. Uh, The wilderness, if you remember, is where the glorious woman back in chapter 12 who brought forth the Christ child, that's where she escaped to. Remember when the dragon tried to destroy her, she escaped into the wilderness. And so we should see the wilderness here is really a description of this world that we are living in, a world that's under the curse of sin. And and that brings us to this another contrast here. 
Excuse me. And that is the contrast between the filthy harlot that we see here in chapter 17 and that glorious woman that we saw back in chapter 12. There are lots of contrasts here. And you've got to kind of keep in mind that the whole scope here. But again, what we see now is that the enemies of God's people, that is, those who are the enemies of those who is, or they were described in chapter 12, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, the enemies of God's people are coming after them. That's what we have here. These two, the beast and the harlot, are, are truly the enemies of God's people. They, they want to do us harm. The scarlet color of the beast and, and the clothing of the harlot, they speak of, of ruling, of being in control. Uh, but the bright red color here also puts emphasis on suffering and persecution and death. The blasphemous names refer to the beast's false claims to have a universal sovereignty, claiming to be God, right? These are claims that, uh, that are only true of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, it says later on in verse 14 in this, and also in uh, chapter 19, verse 16, that Christ alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this blasphemy is found in this world but in those who take names to themselves, who take attributes to themselves that belong only to God. Because that's what man wants to do. Man claims to be God. Because we've fallen for the lie of Satan, who told us we can be like God. So, so let's begin with the harlot. Let's just ask that question, right? Who or what does the harlot represent? Well, first of all, we're told that the harlot is called Babylon, Right? And we met Babylon in the uh, pre last time in the sixth bowl of God's wrath. And this is made clear in verse 5 from, from the name that's written on her forehead. And on her forehead was a name, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. It, it, it's like a banner over top of her. It, it's written on her forehead, but it's like a banner under which she lived. This is what she really is. She represents the, the tempting and seductive nature of this world in tempting to draw people away from the truth as it is in Jesus. That's what she stands for. Second, we should remember here that this harlot is, is a worldly city. That is, it is Babylon. And, and that's not the, the literal city that was along the Euphrates River. It's, it's a picture of the city of man. The city of the beast. The city of this world. And this is another contrast because Babylon, of course, is not the city of God, which we're going to meet later on in chapter 21. Uh, this harlot is the essence, really, of, uh, of a pleasure-mad, arrogant, shameless city of old like Babylon of old. The harlot is a picture of all those centers of heathen wickedness that have arisen over the centuries only to eventually fall under the wrath of God. And so she is a symbol of the world's industry, commerce, art, culture, and glory that glorifies man and not God. And these are the things that she uses to entice, to seduce mankind. That is to turn the world away from the true and living God. She's a picture of all that this world has to offer in its luxury, in its vice, in its excitement and pleasure. She's the embodiment of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Another picture I think that might actually ring a bell with us is Vanity Fair. 
in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is also a picture of everything this world has to offer to try to seduce people, seduce believers even. In fact, I should point out that Babylon is never called an adulteress. She's always called a harlot. The Greek word is porne. And so the harlot Babylon was never the lamb's wife, never the bride, and never will be. She's not the false church or the apostate church. She's rather a picture of this world system that we live in as a seductress. She is the one who tempts mankind away from the true and living God. That's what she is. The next thing that we should notice is that Babylon is viewed here as past, present, and future. Her form may change, but really her essence remains the same. She's closely associated with the beast, so much so that she rides on the beast, but she's not the beast. The beast is the entire anti-Christian persecution throughout history as it's been embodied in the successive empires that we see in the history of this world. But Babylon the harlot represents the world system itself as an anti-Christian seduction that that appears at any moment in the history of this world. She was present in John's day in the empire of Rome, right? And that's made clear actually in verse 9 where there's this reference. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. This the commentators all believe this is a clear reference to Rome. That the Apostle John, he, he sees the Rome of his own day. And he sees it not only as a, the head of anti-Christian persecution, which it was, but as a place that was filled with vanity and luxury and sinful pleasure, right? It was a pleasure-mad city. In fact, you might even remember from church history that Luther went to Rome on a pilgrimage in the early 1500s And he was quite sure that he would find heaven on earth. And yet the immorality and the decadence that he found there shocked him. And it was at that time that the the words of Habakkuk 2 and and Romans 1 1 were firmly pressed upon his soul that the righteous, the just, excuse me, shall live by faith. And he didn't see it there. Now, during the days of John, the Roman government sponsored circuses where the the saints of God were torn to pieces for the amusement, for the entertainment of the public. As it says in verse 6 here, the harlot was drunk on the blood of the saints. In in the next chapter, chapter 18, we read in verses 4 and 5 of a voice from heaven telling God's people to come out of Babylon. Don't stay there. That's not where you belong. And I heard of another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So this is a a reminder to us. It's it's a warning. And and it's a warning not only to those who who live near that end of the world's history, in those very last days. It, It was a warning for the believers in John's day. And it's a warning for us. It's it's a warning for believers in any age that we need to watch out for the harlot Babylon because she is the seducer of the world. She is vanity fair. 
Now, people of God, Babylon, the great harlot, is this world at its center. It has the seduction of people. And this occurs at any moment in history, particularly this present gospel age that we're living in. It is vanity fair. It's the world system and all of its temptations and all of its allurements to sin. to try to get us to leave our Savior, to follow the beast, to follow the world's corrupt and bankrupt system. The harlot always opposes the bride, the new Jerusalem, the church, the city of God. And you see, both of these symbols, the harlot and the bride, both are introduced by angels who, remember, carried the bowls of God's wrath. And they are avowed enemies of one another. They're opposites. You can't be in both camps at the same time. You're either in the city of God or the city of man in Babylon. And so the final fall of Babylon not only means the the final destruction of this world system as the center of anti-Christian culture and seduction when our Lord returns, but it also means the destruction and the very end of every activity that preceded this down through the history of the world as it continued to entice to sin and to rebel against our God. It's all going to come to an end. We're going to get to more of this in the second point. But the point here is that Babylon's fall takes place throughout history, but especially on that great and terrible day of the Lord in the final judgment. Because you see, the the fall of the last great Babylon, the, the harlot in her final form, it really coincides with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. They're just closely connected together. The finality and the final judgment. Now, now beloved, there is a warning here that you and I should not miss. It's a warning we've heard over and over. And that in itself, the fact that we've heard it over and over, it should impress upon us the need that you and I have to hear this warning and to heed this warning. Because I want you to ask yourself a question. How much do you think of the world system is already in the church? Is already in you and me? We're bombarded by it every day, aren't we? You know, the command of Christ is for the church to go into the world with the gospel of salvation that's found only in our Lord Jesus Christ. The danger is that the world can come into the church. The the danger is that we may be tempted to take on the the wisdom and the agenda of the world around us. I've spoken to two different friends from from different parts of the country in this past month. One was from an evangelical church whose pastor was retiring, and the other was attending this rather large evangelical church, And the message, this is what was astounding, the message that was coming down from the leadership of the church and the leadership of their association, which you would have thought would have been a conservative evangelical message, sounded like it was actually coming from the progressive political agenda of our day. Is that what we're supposed to be about as the church of Jesus Christ? Are we supposed to take our agenda from the world? I mean, what does the world think the church is supposed to be doing? Charity work? Social justice? Political action, maybe? 
But what are we called to do? The Lord says to His wayward people in Jeremiah 6.16, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. And hear what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Should not a people seek their God? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Now the church should be involved in helping the poor, in standing for truth and justice in this world. God's truth and God's justice. But the church should never take its cue from the world. I mean, these things are really even, in that sense, are a secondary uh, part of the ministry of the church. But our primary task is to preach the gospel. And to preach the gospel is to preach against sin. It's to warn about the judgment to come. It's to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, the only way to escape the wrath of God that is coming on this world. And the warning here is not just for the world or for the church at large that might be going astray. It is for each and every one of us as individual believers. It's to us that Christ is speaking this morning. Remember the words of this same apostle in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17. through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's only two camps. The Father's camp and the world's camp. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. If there's one thing that you and I should learn from the visions of the book of, the Re- of Revelation is that this world, as we know it today, is passing away. Judgment is coming. Now we're told in verse 6 that John is amazed at this vision of the harlot Babylon riding on the beast. And the angel addresses John's amazement in verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Notice that what follows in the rest of this chapter is not so much about the harlot, but about the beast. We're going to get into more about the harlot in chapter 18. But what follows here is the history of the beast. And and the reason for this is because you cannot understand the harlot unless you understand the beast. Again, they are so closely connected, they, they go hand in hand. The history of the beast begins in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. The beast represents the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms that have opposed the kingdom of our God. This actually began all the way back in in Genesis back with Nimrod, a a mighty one on the earth in Genesis chapter 10. Right after the flood, you remember? Nimrod, we're told, founded the city of Babel where God confused the languages of the people. The language of the people, two languages, right? And why did God do this? 
to stop them from making a name for themselves. As opposed to making a name for God, right? That's where they were all centered. That's where they were all headed. Assyria was next, followed by Babylon, then the medial Persian, Persian excuse me, Empire. Finally, that was followed by the Empire of the Greeks, out of which came Antiochus Epiphanes, who was really a, a per, precursor and a type of the final Antichrist. And what do you know about all of these great kingdoms of the world? Well, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation by the Apostle John, these kingdoms had all come and gone. Now, now remember here, the beast, we're told, has seven heads, right? Which represents seven kings. Five have fallen. Those five that we just talked about. That's what it says in verse 10. One is, and which kingdom would that be? That would be the kingdom of Rome which was already persecuting the church, even as John wrote this. In fact, he is suffering from that persecution, even as he writes this uh, in exile on the island of Patmos. And what's yet to come? A seventh king. A seventh kingdom. And when it comes, it will remain only for a short time, we're told. So this seventh head is really kind of a collective title for all the anti-Christian governments between the fall of Rome and the final empire of the Antichrist that's going to oppress the church right up to and including the days just before the second coming of our Lord and Savior. And so this this whole age thus far has really lasted 2,000 years. But it's just a little while, as we've heard over and over in the various forms in chapters 11 and 13, as well as at the beginning of this book. So, So... What else do we learn here? Verse 11. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven. So there's this connection that's being drawn here between the kingdom of the beast and those kingdoms of old. And yet, what is the final verdict of all of this? This kingdom, the kingdom of the beast, too, will fail. And he is going to Perdition. The word means utter ruin, complete loss, destruction. Let's keep moving here. But what about the ten horns of verse 12? The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Now the word horns, as we've already seen before, horns always speaks of strength. And the text makes it clear that these ten horns are ten kings. In other words, these are ten strong kings who give their support to the beast and who reign with him for a very short time. For one hour. And they give their full and enthusiastic support to the beast, right? They're one mind with the beast. They they give him all of their power, all of their influence. And so this is really a, a picture of the uniting of the world with the beast against the Lamb of God, against his church. And it will be a terrible but short time for the church. It will look like the beast has won. It will look like it's all lost. But it will not be so, beloved. All of these horn kings, they all have one design, right? They have one purpose. One purpose that they are unanimous in. And what is that purpose? 
They are determined to help the beast in its conflict against Christ and with the church. And for a while, it's actually going to seem like things are going pretty well for the world. The harlot gives the kings of this world of her golden cup here. And they're drunk with the wine of her abominations. But something happens here, we're told. The ten horns, the ten kings, they turn on the harlot. They, they hate her, we're told. They destroy her, devour her. Why? Because the pleasures of sin always disappoint in the end. Just like Judas, who, who worshipped mammon, right? Money. By the end, he was overcome with remorse. He hung himself. So there is this sense in which we can say here, the world will eventually destroy itself. It cannot help but do so. Because that's the path that it's on. And why does this happen? It happens because the dragon does not really rule. The beast does not really rule. The harlot Babylon does not really rule. The people of this world, the people who have the mark of the beast, they do not really rule. Because you see, there's only one sovereign ruler over all. And that's the Lord our God. As it says in verses 17 and 18, for God has put it in their hearts to fulfill His purpose. To be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw in this great city which reigns is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So so here's a lesson for us. A lesson we need to learn and remember every day as we live in this world of sin and darkness. What happens to those who give themselves to sin? To the world system? To the dragon? To the beast? To the harlot? Well, first of all, they become infatuated with the pleasures and the treasures of this world and they harden themselves to the things of God and to God Himself, right? They harden themselves in their sin. And when it's too late, they finally realize they've been duped. That the pleasures they sought and delighted in, they leave them with a mouth full of gravel, as the wise man says in Proverbs. And they're finally punished by the, by the results of their own foolishness. Because what happens is they reap what they've sown. That's what happens. And they turn on each other. Now, people of God, there's a serious warning here for all of us. Because the question really before us this morning is, where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Are you seeking after this world and all that it has to offer? Or are you seeking after the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Because you see, there's only two paths in this world. And one is the way of disaster and eternal suffering. The other is the way of blessing and eternal life. It's always been that way. And it will always be that way. There, there's no middle ground in the battle for your soul. You remember what our Savior did? Because He was tempted by Satan with all that this world has to offer. He was tempted to forego the cross, to take the easy way, in Matthew 4, verses 8-10, through 10, again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You can have it all. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now think about what Jesus said there. Because what it's really saying, if you are seeking after the things of this world, if that's where your heart is, then you're really worshiping Satan. You have bowed down before him. And of course, this is what divides all mankind. This is what will divide everyone at the end of the age. There's the way of sin. There's the way of righteousness. Which path will you take? Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life? Or will you follow this world to its utter and eternal destruction? Listen to what Jesus says. I know you know these verses. Matthew 6, 31-33. Therefore do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And these things shall be added to you. There's a broad way. And a narrow way in this world. And if you take the broad way, the way of this world, there's no hope for you. None. But if you take that narrow way, the difficult way, that is the way that leads to life, to eternal life. Again, as Jesus said in more words from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And what is the promise of God to those who come to Him through Christ? Listen to those familiar words from the psalmist, Psalm 16, last two verses, 10 and 11. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, beloved, there's one verse that I sort of skipped over, and I'm going to use it to close this morning. Listen again to what it says in verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. That is, the Lamb shall conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Now you, now you might, might remember that I have, I've said previously that this verse, chapter 17, verse 14, is really the, the whole theme of the book of Revelation. Throughout history, throughout the entire age of the Gospel, the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, has constantly defeated every form of anti-Christian dominion in this world. I mean, think about it. What happened to the kingdom of Nimrod? The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Empire of the Medes and the Persians, the Empire of Greece, the Empire of Rome. They've all disappeared under the powerful and almighty sword of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, nations can only be punished, can only suffer the wrath of God in this world, which is what God promises He will do. 
And that's what's happened again and again down through history. This is true even of those anti-Christian persecutions that have been since the days of Rome. They come and they go. Tyrants rise and they fall. And so it will be at the end of the age. There will be a worldwide revival of anti-Christian persecution and anti-Christian seduction. Maybe it's beginning now, who knows? But what is going to happen then? What is going to happen at the end? We are reminded here that our God, everything that He has promised for the wicked and everything that He has promised for His people, it will all come to fruition. It will all come to fulfillment. It will all come to pass. And even on that day when it looks like the dragon has won, it will not be so. We're going to get to this eventually, Lord willing, but I want you to listen to what it says about the devil and all who follow him later on in Revelation chapter 20, verses 9 and 10, where we're actually given more details about the plans of God for the world in the future. It says this, Revelation 29 and 10, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The world's trying to destroy the church completely. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Beloved, it's a very simple message that is given to us as God's people. That no matter what it may look like in this world, no matter how bad it may get, no matter how much it might look like the, the world and the dragon and Babylon are going to prevail, the clear message of the Word of God, the clear message of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is very simply, the Lamb wins. He always has. And He always will. And all God's people said, Amen.